Welcome back, everyone, to the Vikingology podcast. Yes, welcome back. It's been a while. Oh, the art and science of the Viking Age. Oh, the art and science of the Viking Age. <laughs> See, this is it. It's been a while. It, well, <laughs> the last person we talked to was um, Ben Raffield, and that was like the first of September. But there's an important yeah. reason why we had a little pause, and that is because you and your lovely wife were incubating a new little Viking. <laughs> And he is sleeping right here. <laughs> and, and so if he wakes up, if you hear a baby crying today, that's why. It's it's not a sound effect. It's a real baby. Yeah, so he's not, sleeping it's, soundly. It's yeah. not a commentary on how, how good or bad the podcast is. It's, <laughs> he's, but he's, today's his two weeks birthday. So congratulations uh, to you and your family. Correct. Yeah, yeah, two weeks. It's been two weeks. Can you see it on my face? <laughs> no, you look good. <laughs> <laughs> But we actually had to re uh, reschedule this podcast with our guest, Dr. Tom Horn. So we thank you for your your patience and your flexibility. And um, you know, we were we were trying to work out schedules, but we're finally here. So um, and uh, let's see. Um, so I'm going to let everybody know who you are, but then we'll start with a, a little bit of a quiz, right? CJ, you know where I'm going with that? Yeah. Okay. All right, so Dr. Tom Horn is an archaeologist and historian. Yay, got the historian part in there. Specializing in the Viking age and Viking trade networks. And so what I really like is you've got like this multifaceted thing going on. So you're not just kind of an academic, but you've got like a real sort of public face um, to what you do, which we love around here at Vikingology because that's what we're all about too, is making sure that the public knows about this interesting history. Um, but so public history, archaeology, all that mixed together in working in things like um, or at places like the BBC as a historical um, researcher and also um, now the company Red River Archaeology. Um, and, and you're still working there, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And then you volunteer at a museum. So that's even also great for public outreach. So the Govan Stones Museum in Glasgow, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and also you have a podcast as well, and we will make sure that our audience knows about all of these things so they can check you out in all of these various places. But so your podcast is called The Shindig, which is really cool. I don't know whoever came up with that name. That was brilliant. Um, it wasn't me. It was. It, it would have been uh, Tanai and Jonskin in, in season one. I heard there was a, there was a lot of work going into that to get to to get it to work. And yeah, uh, yeah. There's a play on words in it. It's yeah. it's fun. It's got that Celtic element because we're a sort of you know British and Irish company. So yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. So you know, if you get the word dig in there with archaeology, I guess you've succeeded. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Stop there. That's fine. If you got fun with digging it, you're you're good. So you also, I mean, you published, you know, uh, quite a bit um, articles, but also a book in 2021, which we will also link up, um, which is really interesting. A Viking market kingdom in Ireland and Britain, semicolon, <laughs> trade networks in the importation of a southern Scandinavian silver bullion economy. Um, and also- Nappy, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Was that a really catchy title. Was that really, an editor yeah, yeah. or was it, it just rolls off the tongue? <laughs> yeah, I tend to call it the post-colonic for good reason. So. <laughs> but you've also co-edited another book about the Viking Age in Scotland. So that's that's cool. And we can talk about that a, a bit as well. But um, And you've done archaeological field work. So, dude, you do everything, man. This is awesome. Welcome. I, I try. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the lovely introduction, and thank you guys for for having having me on. And yes, um, we were trying to arrange this for a while, and 
uh, obviously you had uh, uh, you know lovely uh, life events going on, and I was away digging early medieval archaeology as well. So it all it all turned out for the best. Yeah, I saw some Thank of those you. amazing pictures that you were posting on on your social media, like on Twitter and Instagram, and um, yeah, that looked like you were having a heck of a good time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what I do with public outreach as well, it helps, as you guys will know, that you know archaeology is just so photogenic. You know, it just you can't, you know, you just sort of point a camera at something or or film it and it's going it's going to look good. It appeals to people. So, you know, be, being although the caveat for that is on an early medieval site, there's as we're, people were talking about it's 50 shades of brown. So there's a slightly different <laughs> changes. Um, <laughs> Archaeology porn. <laughs> it's it's yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of that, you know, if you know, you know sort of thing, but often you spend half your time with the sort of filters on your photographs trying to get it so you can actually see that thing that you could see on the day. But the photograph is just this that slightly brown sort of beige sort of puddle in the middle. So yeah. <laughs> ah, well. Well, so before we get started, um, we uh, sometimes like to have a little fun figuring out what kind of Viking our guests are. And so I have a little quiz for you. And so okay. it's thing, so it's going to be some things, um, you know, and I don't know if you looked at any of our other podcasts, but we've done it with a few people. But anyway, so um, I have a few things that I'll ask you, like, so give you two, a choice of two things, and then you choose which one um, appeals to you. Okay. Most. All right. Cool. Right. Here we go. All right, ale or mead? Uh, ale, ale, ale. Okay. Silk or wool? Ah, long, long distance trade networks has got to be silk. <laughs> this is for you, not. <laughs> uh, okay, beef or skier? Oh, skier. Ooh. Now, I probably know how you're going to answer this one. Iron or silver? Um, no, well, yes. Well, I think I think silver is kind of at the root of everything ever. So I'll go silver. Oh, wow. Okay. A canoe or a long ship? Long ship. Thor or Jesus? Can I not be a Viking and at some stage choose both? <laughs> not have one of those uh, Thor's hammers that's got a bit of a cross element on, to on it the other well. side. You're, you're yeah. the syncretic Viking. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, like split the middle there. Okay. Um, Lindisfarne or Constantinople? Constantinople, definitely. All right, and lastly, a sword or a rock. uh depends if, if if there's any silver in the rock um but I, I, <laughs> is it an ore i don't know um i'll go I'll, I'll go i'll go i'll go a sword as soon as you said that i think of the if anyone's ever been to the national museum of scotland there's the the sword hilt from egg the isle of egg e-i-g-g -G, and it's one of the most beautiful pieces of art that that you can see it's um uh yeah so i'd go for a very very nicely uh, decorated sword all right. Well, I think mm, you are falling in the category of being a fancy later period urban Viking. Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
The only thing you did, I mean, you, so you would be one of those like vegetarian Vikings because you didn't choose, <laughs> you didn't choose beef. <laughs> I think it's just reflecting being a middle-aged man and the red meat I've got to, I've got to cut back on. So yeah, I think that it's all, it's all fitting. Oh, but you still had the ale there in you. So it brought you back down to earth a little bit. You didn't go for the highfalutin mead stuff, right? I, I, I just really this... evolved. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like when I when I when she asked me, I I it was just you know you're either a high class or a low class Viking, <laughs> and now we're we're going to like late Viking age urban contemporary Viking with makeup. You know, like what I <laughs> I'm in, really specific I'm in, now, Terry. <laughs> I'm not in beer. I'm in Sigtuna now. I'm in that later. It's kind of that niche. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, <laughs> Metro Viking. Metro, yeah, you're a yeah. Met- metrosexual Viking, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, okay. So, um, I mean, I don't even know where to start with this. I have so many questions um, for you. And I know, you know, we were emailing and I had shared with you that little piece that I wrote because I think the economic piece of it is so interesting. And um, so, and, and we'll link this up, whatever, but, you know, the, the ideas of this, this older economist in the United States from literally like a hundred years ago. And if you're American and you, you have any sort of interest in economics or academia, you, you probably have heard at least the name Thorsten Veblen, but this guy who was like writing about this stuff, like a hundred years ago, and then I'm reading your book and it was just like, ah, this is like what he's talking about. How, so these Viking trade networks, that, you know, a lot of this stuff was probably not just these one-off little whatevers that sometimes we've been, you know, and I don't want to say led to believe, but, you know, just sort of the rando quality of like, you know, a couple guys getting into a boat and going off and sacking a monastery or something. And, but that it was much more, and especially over time, much more highly sort of coordinated and structured than that. And it really is kind of like creating um, an enterprise that sort of goes international. And, and so I'm kind of want to ask you your thoughts about that, because you're talking about trade networks that are Britain and Ireland, but of course it, it originates in, or it extends from other places in the Viking world. So, you know, maybe what, what about that interested you? And then, you know, what do you think about, you know, that kind of hypothesis? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you're talking about where it starts, and this seems to start, you know, Sweden, Central Sweden, Gotland, um, in terms of what I'm looking at, sort of trade networks and these sort of movements, and of course they they seem to be going east at that time into the sort of Russian-Ukrainian river systems, uh, linking up with the, um, the sort of caliphates world and the various emirates that are around that as well. Um, but I, you know, I it's I find it's difficult with 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 the pioneers because. By necessity, it's usually got small numbers and it's early. So it's kind of difficult to find out. But so what I kind of am interested in is how, and I think what you're interested in uh, as well, Terry, is how these things become kind of, you know, uh, solidified, how, how they kind of get structured, and then how people get interested in seeing that there's a structure that, that works. And I think what's happening in the Viking Age in terms of uh, trading and running slave networks, which I think, you know, is, is kind of behind m- most things, is that you've got the pioneers that go out and maybe they're from Gotland, maybe from the area um, uh, around where Birka is to, to, to the west of, of modern Stockholm. So they're off and they're, they're, these are small groups. These are the small groups you're thinking, it's, it's a village, it's, it's, a, it's a group of cousins that are going out to do that. Um, but I'm interested in the, the people who observe those patterns and see what is successful and what works. So I'm kind of interested in, see the people in Southern Scandinavia, and when I say Southern Scandinavia, 
That's also uh, Skuna, Scania, that, that southern part of Sweden. It's southern, the Oslo Fjord, you know, part of southern Norway, and what we consider Denmark and probably northern Germany and in, into Friesland, sort of Frisia um, at the moment. It's those people that are sort of looking at what's happening in the east and the Baltic and saying, ah, okay, this they're stripping out kind of what works. They're looking at saying you kind of need you can't control trade networks at that time, but you can you can make your trading site attractive people, and then you can bring all this money, all these slaves, all these raw materials, all the silver that's associated with it in terms of a means of payment, you know, cash money, and you can funnel that in. And I think that's what the Southern Scandinavians are doing. And then from my book, what I'm saying is what they are doing particularly in the low countries, northern France, what they're doing in Ireland in the sort of 840s, 850s, and then what they're doing with the Great Army in England and in southern Scotland and Wales is they are sort of taking the lessons that have been learned in the in the sort of 8th century and maybe earlier in the Baltic and the East, and that's been taken by these southern Scandinavians, and they made it into something that you can sort of replicate you know there's jobs when i start a job i say i'm kind of not interested in doing one-off things i'm trying to make structures and make things that are replicable so i always say if i get hit by a bus there's some there's some legacy there there's there's structures in in place because anyone can you know have a one you know not anyone can have a one hit wonder it's very difficult to have one hit wonder but you know what i mean there's a chance to do that but it, it's that repeated success it's these sports teams that say it's not winning it the first time it's winning it again and again and again i think if you what the people are doing southern scandinavia and then are bringing it to the sort of um, britain and ireland i think they're seeing the things that can be replicated and they're going to britain and ireland with a sort of idea that they they want to create they want to bring these trade networks that are linking them to the baltic and and, and, and the middle east and they also then want to say okay we need particular types of sites because that's where we can replicate that's where we can have secure trade and do things in a, in a long term and hence why you'd be interested in setting up something like dublin and why you'd be interested in sort of revivifying somewhere like your jorvik as, as they would have known it yeah so exactly i mean that, that was my contention too as far as you know, again, so my students and CJ and I have talked about this too. I mean, they read James Barrett's article, you know, about what caused the Viking age and he's focusing on the West and it's sort of like, okay, why is the West different than what was going on in the East? And it's like, oh, maybe these kind of smaller scale raids and, you know, more rural than urban phenomenon and all of that. But it's kind of like, yeah, but it's not like it's this whole sort of different thing, full stop. It's just that, you know, when you're kind of getting going, you start small and you start local, right? And then, but what you're doing is like what you're saying, at least in my mind too, is that somehow through contact, you've sort of sussed out what's going on, right? And these other, and you just sort of want to get in on the action. And and that, that's, it's the beginnings of that. It's the beginnings of the spreading of this trade even farther, yeah, it was blog, blog fists in Sørensen back. There's so many, you know, if, one reason just to get my book plug, first plug, is <laughs> that, you know, you can actually see all the people that I've read that have had the really good ideas that I've kind of based everything on. And blog fists talking about network kingdoms is one of those moments when you're suddenly like, ah, everything started to make sense. It's one of those you read it was a chapter in a book and suddenly it's network kingdoms and he's talking about, you're sort of controlling again, not controlling the, the the actual routeways, but you're trying to encourage them to bend them towards an area that you can control. And that was the sort of the game changer for me that there was maybe this sort of playbook that had been developed in the Baltic that was then kind of transposed into into sort of Ireland first, and then and then Britain. That's why and you know my title is Ireland and Britain because I think they they're doing it in Ireland first. I think there's a big contention for what's happening in Dublin. There's basically a long story short is. 
there's possibly Norwegians or Northern Scandinavians that are the, the first ones that are, are settling in, in Dublin. But something big happens around about 850 and there seems to be a change in management. And I think what's happening then, it's these Southern Scandinavians. You can't really call them Danes because, you know, whatever. But they're, they're from Southern Norway. They're from they're from Denmark. Wherever. They've probably been in the low countries in, in Francia. Some of them will have been born there sort of thing. So they're, they're this different, different sort of group. And I think what happens in the 850s is this is when they've identified, okay, Dublin is a good place if you're wanting to set up a slave trading exercise because you've got the warring Irish kingdoms and the overkings. So that's producing lots of captives, lots of potential slaves. And I think that these Southern Scandinavians say, okay, we'll 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 have some, we'll have some of that. And then that's they 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 take over your new management in, in in Dublin. And why do you take over somewhere? Because they're doing something right already. And what are they doing? They're bringing these ideas that they've seen in southern they've seen working in southern and the southern Baltic and the central Baltic. And they're 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 bringing them to Ireland. And then I what the, what I think is then happening in the in the sixties with the Great Army is elements of these guys that are being in Dublin, the Low Countries, in the Baltic. They're then saying, okay, what can we do that's similar? In, in this very rich, uh, centralized, uh, uh, well, the, the heptarchy, whatever. But there, there's all these sort of really sort of robust kingdoms that have got, you know, minting, they've got money, they're organized. That's why the, the Normans come in is because you've got this amazing kingdom that's there that's very, very organized. So they, they recognize that, but then they recognize they've got somewhere like York or, you know, they, they try their best to keep London, but it's just too close to Wessex really to do that. So York, Yorvik is, is the place that they can say, okay, this is Dublin Mark II. This is our sort of British and Irish Mark II. Of, and then that's why I think for the, the rest of the, the, the first Viking age, they're always trying to keep Dublin and York together because they're, that's that's the key. You want to have these major trading centers. And then from that, you can link in, you can sell slaves through the Mediterranean, or you can you can trade across the North Sea into 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 the Baltic and get and get some of that silver, the dirhams that you know, which I, I talk about a lot. So I think yeah, plug number two for your book. So the other part of the book title um is a Viking Market Kingdom, right? And so then that's clearly, I mean, it's it's a, a special kind of little beast, right? Because it's not like a territorial kingdom like we usually think of, right? It's 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 these markets that in their sort of individual little cells all together create a kingdom. It's it, it's the network, right? That yeah, yeah, and 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 that's it. I mean, what you want to do with empires you know obviously empires are not not a good thing but you know the people who set them up what they want to do is i think it is you know without sending you know, neoclassical whatever it's at least cost path you're trying to set up the british i also go back to the, the british empire was like a terrible thing but what it tries to do and whenever it get it gets into trouble whenever it goes inland as you'll have seen with the 13 colonies all the friction is starting when the colonists want to move inland but the british are like no, that's expensive. You have to fight the, uh, the the Native Americans. You have to fight the French. There's Spanish there. We just want all the sort of nice mercantile ports, and we can take the money and we can exploit the the the, the slaves and the, the sugar plantations in the 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 Caribbean. And everything goes wrong in the you know the the 1760s because everyone's trying to expand and, and make it a territorial sort of empire. And the British kind of inherently understand that that's really not going to work. And then with the British Empire. Again, when it expands post the American uh, Revolution, I also have a sideline in the American Revolution. By the way, you might you might tell um, 
they have informal empires in, in, in South, Southern and Central America, but it's just like Buenos Aires that they'll control all the credit, for example. And that's kind of what they want to do. They do want to expand inland. And where it all starts to go wrong and you get the worst excesses of empire is when they start to, the race for Africa, for example, when they're trying to do it beyond the ports of what's now Mumbai, for example. That's when things go wrong because, again, then you're having to control millions of people at times who very much don't want you to be there you don't want to be there um because you just set this out as a way to get you know in this mercantilist world to get to get money and trade and bring that back in through largely sort of london essentially and control the money so empires tend to to go wrong when you've got all this territory control what you want to do certainly for certain types of empire is, is control the money control the credit and control the, the trading sites so maximum outputs, least amount of inputs is possible, right? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 yeah, yeah. Pe people are kind of we're all inherent. Lazy is the wrong word. I think lazy is the wrong, a uh, completely wrong word. But you know, if, if you can get the same result for for yeah. much less effort, ninety nine percent of people, ninety nine percent of the time, will, will do that. I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that a good, the uh, that, that brings up a good point too with with the Vikings staying on in coastal areas, not trying to make mainland invasions. And you mentioned in the 850s, there's a changing of the guard in Ireland. Now, my understanding is that the Irish had two words to describe different types of Vikings. It's unclear who's who and what's what, but we think mm -hmm. we know. And there's the Dubgal, which would be the, the so supposedly the Danes, the dark northerners, and then the Fingal, the light northerners, the Norwegians. I think that's what I've read. Uh, yeah. But there's also some contention there as to how exactly these terms were used. Uh, but in 847, very pivotal year, I'm actually writing a book that is in that year right now about a an invasion of the Brittany region of France, uh, La Bretagne. Right after they declared independence from the Carolingian Empire, then Vikings arrived and started a mainland invasion and won three successive battles against the, the king of Brittany, Nominoe. And the writing was on the wall. It looked like it was it was over. At the same time in Ireland, the Vikings lost three consecutive battles against the Irish and were effectively expelled from Ireland. And that's when you see the force in Brittany actually collapse and withdraw, right? So it's the, the idea there is that there's a supply line that was allowing them, you know, so basically that network. And once that network was interrupted, they had to leave because there's no way they could support themselves. But um, I think, you know, so 847, what I see is, to your point, is there's a lot of trial and error happening with the Vikings where they did try mainland invasions and it was expensive and it was costly, you know, and it was costly in terms of lives, not just finances. And then the supply lines to keep those things active were unsta too unstable to really support it. And then if you fast forward later in that region where they do make inroads in the 10th, early 10th century, where they actually occupy most of Brittany and then there's a, a I, I always call it a reconquista just because of <laughs> uh, but there's this guy Alain Barbetort, he re, you know he reconquered Brittany on behalf of the Bretons and then when they they took Nantes it was a derelict city like they the Vikings have made no effort to turn it into a, a flourishing trade port like they had York and I think to that point is the amount of effort and I know you you said we don't want to use the word lazy but it almost seems lazy right where they they, they went that far and they're like, all right, let's reorganize this economy and move all the wealth out and then move it back up through Ireland and all, you know, you know, all that. But then the actual effort to like make it a durable colony, right? They're just like, it's just not worth it, right? Because we're just going to get sucked into the Carolingians, the Bretons, you know, whatnot. So that's an interesting, it's an interesting point because 
we always there's that mystery right why was not left derelict and then you just brought up a really interesting idea of well it's just because the economics of it right like it just wouldn't have made economic sense to continue to push inward right yeah and i i think yeah i think the vikings are very much like horses for courses i think you know they presumably if that had worked I'm sure they they would have they would have treated it like a yard. You've got you know if you've got Roman walls or whatever that you can piece together. If you've got rivers, if you've got uh, sea access to it, it's got to tick certain boxes. But I mean, there's certain things as well. I think whenever you look back in this distant past, there'll be factors now that we just couldn't even conceive. They'll have that slightly different mental architecture, and they would have just known this doesn't feel right, or they you know you know as you're alluding to earlier with the with the, the networks and the trade routes. At that time, the money's maybe going down to Al Andalus, you know, for example, they're, they're trading there. So they're not, there's kind of no point uh, dealing uh, in Brittany. And Brit- you know, Brittany is uh, an area, as you say, with the, with the, 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 the Franks or the, 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 Car- the Carolingians and the Bretons are you know, both quite fierce. Um, and it's, it's, you know, similarly, they don't go, you know, inland, particularly as in Ireland, there are certain areas that they're quite fierce people that they think actually, actually know. So I don't know about not too, too much in terms of its topography or whatever, there potentially just some vulnerability that they, they assess there, um, or there as a transshipment point, it didn't make much sense. You weren't saving too much effort. You may as well just go straight to, uh, some of the big markets in in you know, Sevilla, whatever now as well. You may just go to the to to the southern coast of 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 Spain. So yeah, on that particular one, yeah, I, I just say that in, in general, I usually think what's the the horses for courses option, and they'll just go with with what works at that time, and that can change over time. So I want to ask actually kind of backtrack a little bit just for our audience and sort of establish like who we are talking about here because i think you know i mean for for a lot of people probably i mean some of this stuff would be like oh well that's interesting that they would actually be sort of that forward thinking about it or that strategic about it or that sort of coordinated or whatever word you want to use right that oh these are like these knuckle dragger people that you know beat each other up with swords that lived 1200 years ago and that they wouldn't have been sort of as sophisticated in the corporate sense, like we have in modern companies, you know, uh, and especially in not only sort of starting these things, but expanding them. And so like, who is it? Is it the Sea Kings? Is it, you know, is it, do we know people by by name? Do we have any idea of like, um, you know, who's the El Chapo of the Viking cartel, right? That's sort of helping to kind of orchestrate and keep this business going and expanding into these various areas. Do we know? I think, you know, we never quite know, but I think if if you look at their prominence in 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 the 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 the, the, the English and Irish sources, you've got you know Olaf Olafur and Ivar Ivar being the main one, you know that that has the 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 dynasty that, that forms it. But I think, and again, this is idea whether you'll you, um you know you have this idea of um you know are are they actual brothers are they blood brothers um or are they sort of essentially sort of colleagues but i think i think if you can understand ivar um i think you can understand the kind of figure that we're talking about we're talking about people you don't quite know where they're from you think maybe from the way they operate that they're maybe more like southern scandinavians that they're 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 setting up and they're thinking of themselves and that's an urban world so they're they're setting up and they're going to places 
like Dublin and York, that's where they're gravitating towards, which again would make you think it's possibly more likely that they're from the southern part of Scandinavia. Um, Olaf is, is as well, and also there there are various figures, but I think you know I think the repeating names of these figures, the fact that they're in Britain and Ireland, and they're connected to this great army in the way that the great army seems to work, and it's it's again they're set, they seem to be setting up these essentially sort of mobile towns, and you get with the Longfears essentially the what the equivalent of a winter camp in in Ireland before you get the winter camps in 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 England and probably even southern Scotland as well that we haven't found yet. Um, I think these are the figures that we're that we're talking about. With underneath them, I think structures you get hints in the history as well. You probably get groupings of ships, whether they're from a particular region or they're just groups of people that have worked together in the past. And because you get, I think you get in the histories, you'll get groups of ships that will just go off and they're they're all meant to be raiding the Seine. And some of them will just think actually no and they go off to Brittany. Uh, but then they'll all join back again later. So I think these are kind of fairly contingent groups, but I think there's there's certain major figures that cause these groups to sort of coalesce for periods and for periods within a year. But I think, yeah, you're going to be talking about this at Olaf's and Evers and how much of their story is legendary or not. But again, their names get mentioned in multiple sources and the, it fits with my model of where you'd expect people to be involved, probably originally in the Low Countries, Francia, then they're in Ireland, then they're in England and, and, and Scotland uh, up until the late 70s, early 80s. So that's the kind of kind of people I think that you're 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 dealing with you will have major figures, but beneath that you'll have groups that will sort of coalesce and, and dissipate and they'll come back together and it'll just as and as and when suits. But you know, there's that game theory of eventually you've got to get enough people together, enough groups, enough ships, enough groups of ships together to be effective. So there's a certain point where you can't go off and do your own thing too much. So you kind of need leaders or you need strategists again, for want of a, a better word that look in terms of long term and who've had this experience in the parts of the world the baltic you know the 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 the, the you know russia and ukraine and and are bringing that experience and, and the sort of goals over you know what works and, and and what might work in this particular area i mean it's just so interesting to me the intricacies of it you know and just to think about all right like who's the dude that's writing the check you know it's it doesn't and especially with the escalation in the ninth century i mean it is not cheap in resources human natural or time to to build these ships and get these groups of guys on the road or on the sea road as it were um, and yet it happens. And then you, know, you think about like modern trucking companies. All right. Who are the logistics guys who are doing all of the sort of scheduling of like, OK, this year you're going to go over here and do this. Or I mean, is there that level of like sophistication going on? And then also thinking about the Viking Age and just the nature of communication networks and how slow or fast communication may travel. I mean, like, how do you manage to do all this? It's just astounding to me. And I think that's it. I think, you know, we'll talk about, you know, communities today at the sea that's been passed down from generation to generation. And, you know, you know, you know people, you'll all have known people that have been at sea a lot and they can kind of smell when a storm's coming as well. And nowadays, thankfully, they've got the weather forecast too, but they'll just they'll have a they'll just know from a particular swell and they'll pass that on to their 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 son or daughter, and then they'll pass it on. And then there's just this you know, within groups, people within particular villages, within locales, people just kind of know how the river acts at a certain time of year, or when the wind shifts direction, they're like, 
you, it may be fine to go out to sea, but as soon as you get past the end of that point, it's going to be bad. And then you get into the whole world of these amazing place names. You've got, I know in Brittany as well, you've got the Scandinavian place names and, and through sort of Cornwall and, and Wales. And the, the best one I like in terms of, you know, again, how this is being passed down is Cape Wrath and the northwest coast of mainland Scotland, which basically means, you know, turn left at Albuquerque. So it's, it's Cape <laughs> Turning Point. And so you, you, you've got this idea that they're kind of, they're, they're speaking to each other through these, these um, topographical points in, in the landscape and that's getting passed down that must be getting passed down through people that are moving a lot and people that are moving a lot are probably fairly wealthy they're probably fairly connected so again it's just going to be these same relatively small numbers of people that kind of have all the information and they spread that through their family and that's a form of wealth as well this this knowledge that you can spread of where to go, which rapids, you know, we've got the, you know, um, the, the Byzantine emperors that are using Scandinavian names for particular rapids through uh, Ukraine and, and Russia, because that's, that's where they're getting the names for, you know, the rushing one, the silent one, the noisy one in terms of rapids. And, you know, so I think, I think what the, what the Scandinavians trade in is this, is this knowledge of river routes and sea routes as well as, as much as they are trading in, you know, slaves and and you know, silks and, and and whatever else that they're that they they they're trading at, at that time, but I think the knowledge economy is 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 a huge one in the in the Viking Age. I think that that's interesting because we always sort of, at least in modern West or maybe even the modern world, we sort of think of ourselves as living in like the information age. But like you know, in a certain sense, all of human history is an information age, right? I mean, that's how people are having to survive, is by the the, the passing of that knowledge. Yeah, and I, I mean, I read a few years ago that they say intelligence now is not necessarily knowing things, it's knowing how to find that information. So you don't necessarily have to retain much in your head. Again, let's go back to this, you, you know, kind of least cost path as, as, as beings particularly much. But that is certainly not true for parents, grandparents' generation. That's learning by rote. And people now say, well, it's a bad thing. But, you know, when you don't have an access to a computer at home or you couldn't even afford books, you had to know that times table in your head. Right. And I think that's very much a way that our grandparents' generation before would understand the Viking world probably intuitively better than we do, because you, what you have in your head, what you can you know talk to your your family about, that's your knowledge base, that's your internet, and I think that's how how valuable it would be because if you've got someone that knows how to get successfully to to Dublin that's worth a huge amount of money because that means that then everyone in your village or everyone in your sub kingdom can get there reliably and that's that's kind of priceless yeah that's i'd like to sink my teeth into something that you mentioned uh which is the this idea that they're small populations i think in the in the modern lens we think of the vikings in terms of how they were painted in the 19th century which is these hordes of heathens who descended upon christendom and ravaged the people etc etc but we're really talking about a very small group of people but i think it, it'd be worth discussing like how small of a group are we talking because scandinavia at the time the population was low you compare it to say france or england and whatnot i mean these are this is these are it is a small place and then they start expanding all over the world so they're spreading themselves even thinner so i think it's worth exploring like just how small were these groups and then how and then how big of an impact basically like you know how how yeah how big of an impact were these tiny little groups having in proportion or comparatively to other to other groups at the time right so the viking shows up how big of an impact is is this tiny little group of vikings having compared to the larger geopolitical 
uh, landscape. There we go. I can still. Yeah, you know, I mean, and that's the door. What you've got, you've got you okay? <laughs> 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 it's better than I, I had. I had the weekend with my niece last weekend, and I was just done. <laughs> done for the next week. Um, in terms of uh, numbers, I mean, all you tend to get, as you'll know, is there'll be you know, two hundred ships appear off your coast, and we have to sort of do the do the do the math, as you would say. You know, there are forty, sixty people in each of those ships, and uh, you know, these are round numbers and exaggerating for for effect. I mean, I just tend to think that it's it's so expensive to maintain. Uh, arms so expensive to maintain the horses and horses are really important in the viking world i think that's the first thing that the great army do for example when they get to uh east anglia they you know they persuade you know the, these these anglians to give them horses um because horses are expensive the fodder we're talking about terry's talking about logistics as well things, things like that so i don't get the impression that you need vast numbers you it's kind of like if you've got controls of logistics and i think probably you know if you've got a few hundred people uh in in an army and they're all very well armed and they've got horses and they've got ships as well so they can get to places quickly and they're kind of well fed and they're motivated i think you don't need huge amounts of of people in a, in in an army um you know we never find early medieval battlefields so it's kind of difficult to 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 you know really say this was a big battle and we can you know extrapolate well actually there are 200 people on each side or there are 2000 people on each side. I think the Great Army extent is going to be in the low thousands, but I think its probable strength is that it can grow. And I think the fact is a bit like the Roman Empire, you know, they're they're you know they're, they're quite you know small C Catholic. They they will take in whatever people. And I think their strength is the fact they're a very attractive group of people. If you start off with say three or four hundred warriors, I think you could attract probably that again just through your success. So and I think what you're getting with you know something like the Galloway Horde when you've got these um silver i mean you can uh, maybe explain to your listeners that if we need more background but an amazing horde from about 900 that was discovered a few years ago in southwestern scotland but it, it's noted for looking very much like it's from all over there's a lot of stuff from the irish sea region there are these uh broadband silver armorings which are for that but they're, they're originally actually developed in southern scandinavia and then suddenly from about the 860s, they're developed in sort of uh, uh, Ireland. So again, again, one of these links between Southern Scandinavia and Ireland. But the thing about these, some of these broadband arm rings in this Galway Horde in Southwest Scotland is that they've got running conscriptions on them. Ah, interesting, you think, okay, they're going to have running conscriptions on them, but they're actually in Anglican, uh, Anglian runes. So they're, you know, Anglo-Saxons, they're Northumbrians that have written their names on this and are maybe acting like vikings whatever at, at, at that time so i think that is that was a big a bit of a game changer we suddenly thought because they're all like oh people would have joined in and they would have collected waifs and strays and their armies would have got bigger um so if they started small they, they could have they could have maximized that force relatively quickly i think things like the galloway horde are possibly showing that that's actually how that's happening you know your northumbrians in such, so, you know, because there's Northumbria extends into what is now southern Scotland, so you get Anglo-Saxon kingdoms operating in in Lothian and in, in, in Galloway. And I think if you're if you can get these guys interested in joining you and acting like Vikings and and perhaps depositing hordes that you know everyone would have thought absolutely completely Viking, and then you get this oh, they're they're possibly Northumbrian. That I think that's maybe seeing how you can get the impact because it's not just the numbers that you're getting off the ships with. It's the fact that you're probably being able to persuade people quite quickly to join you. So I think 
you know, over the course of that summer season, your rating, your your numbers will swell with local warriors. And again, you get that local knowledge in, you get actually this is a place you want to raid, you want to go to this place, Repton, it's really good. It's got lots of fodder in for the winter. And I think that's maybe how that explains how you don't need to have huge numbers. You want to there's they would have known the certain amount they've taken to to win a battle. But I think, you know, once you've won that first battle, then you're going to have people that are going to be joining your site. Well, that, that brings up a great point. It, it, a lot of times when I explore this topic and I, I have discussions with people, this there's this sense that anybody who's in, within Christendom is operating differently than the Vikings. Now, the, you know, the Viking Age Scandinavians at the beginning of the Viking Age had a very distinct culture, language, etc., but in terms of the warrior culture of of this idea of I'm going to go out and I'm going to gain wealth, I mean that was that was still common even though they'd Christianized say like in France the Carolingians right like the whole reason Charlemagne was so expansionist wasn't because he was inherently interested in spreading Christendom it's because he had a retinue of warriors who needed to be paid and to pay them they had to raid and conquer etc. And so if Vikings show up off the coast of France and there's a local lord who's got a bunch of of knights that he's not paying properly. And then the Vikings say, well, hey, we have all this silver. Next thing you know, these guys are all going Viking, right? Just for a short amount of time. So they, so this idea that they would be able to hire mercenaries essentially within the areas that they're going. So then I can show up. So then I don't need a thousand men to take Paris. I need 250 convincing lethal looking guys. And then Ooh. I can hire Frisians and Normans and, and you know, and uh, everybody. And then, so essentially these these fleets were were probably and I, I think there's a study that just came out that's showing this i i uh i didn't read it yet but it, it was it was making the news or the rounds on um on social media about how diverse of a group we're talking about too because there's a lot of intermixing there's that dna study that was done a couple of years ago where they showed you know it was a national geographic that said oh we actually found out that these people were from all over and they were intermixing and everything okay that makes sense there's a new study that came out that actually showed that the the composition of these groups wasn't wasn't the same through it like they were they were like you said like these small pockets but it's not just small pockets of scandinavians it's small pockets of scandinavians mixed in with small pockets of of essentially raiders from all these other areas, right? Um, and they're all coalescing together for a common goal briefly and then breaking apart and going off and doing their own thing, which is fascinating, right? Because now we're not talking about a Viking age where it's just Scandinavians doing all the work. It's Scandinavians leading the charge, but then also rallying together people from the lands that they're roving in order to help them achieve their aims, right? I mean, these were true capitalists, right? <laughs> right? Well, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a question, right? And actually, I've heard that put to you in other podcasts. I think maybe even in the Shindig one, it's like, is, is, is what they're doing like an early form of capitalism? Right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard to not like think of that. I mean, obviously, because it's what we know. So we sort of, you know, make it relative to what we know. But I mean, I even said that in the piece that I wrote. It's like, you know, by by our modern standards of how corporations work and the Vikings are management and the rest of the people are like the workers or something, you know, these people that are coming and going that CJ's talking about. And it's and the way they sort of feel seem to have structured it for their success seems kind of similar to what we got going on here in some ways. <clears throat> yeah, you're also gonna get pushed back when you transpose, you know, modern right. economic terms. Right. Um, but you, that doesn't mean you can't have the idea within the word capitalism and say that, 
there's, I mean, again, inheritance probably the wrong word, but I think, you know, people, again, anthropological studies seem to show that, you know, where there is a way to develop a means of exchange, regardless of what that, if it's precious metal or whatever it is, cloth, um, people will realize that that's kind of the only way you can begin to expand and, and do things beyond your village. And that's what people end up doing because people naturally kind of get bored of what they've got. They want to look over the horizon. And to do that with the neighboring valley, the neighboring village, you've got to develop a means of exchange. If you develop a means of exchange, which most societies seem to do all over the world and at all times, is you know, it, capitalism, whatever you want, want to call it. But it's 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 a way to facilitate you to get things that 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 you want. And of course, people then will take that to excess. People will be better at it than others and winners and users. And this is no judgment call. I'm, you know, uh, you know, very sort of centrist dad, as they say in these things. I'm like, you know, people, you know, do whatever make 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 makes them happy. And you know, we we should all, you know, try and share share the wealth where 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 we can. But realizing that you know, capitalism is just always a way that people are going to 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 operate because. It, like democracy, it, it you know it works, and a lot of people aren't happy with it all the time. But you know, if you if you can present to the world an alternative that kind of works, that people will naturally gravitate towards, then then sure. But I don't think there there doesn't seem to be one at the moment. I think that yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing when you talk. Well, even in the title of your book, plug number three, a Viking market kingdom. I mean, you're talking about markets. You know, we still talk about markets. I mean, you can use you know language like supply and demand. You know, the, the of all kinds of commodities, whether it's you know silver or human beings or cloth or maybe even salt. Right, CJ? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I mean. These these things are are things that we can relate to, and I think in some ways you can think, okay, this, some of the behaviors are already there, and like you say, like cross culturally throughout human history, it's just a way people survive and get what they need or get what they want. Um, and then you know, in the 18th century, Adam Smith just sort of codifies it in a certain way, you know, and 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 gives it to the to the world. Um, but yeah, I I think you can't escape the fact that it it feels it feels similar. Um, yeah, I I I I great. We went to the same schools as me, so I was like, my French grandfather wrote a book called uh, "The Climate Victory: La Victoire Climatique." So he's he's retired now. He was a, a an entrepreneur his whole life. He, he's he uh, it's it's an interesting story what he was able to do. He took a, a loan from the French government back in the early 1950s, I believe, to revitalize the fisheries in Western France. And then he used his collateral to build a, an even bigger boat. And then he sailed to Africa, to Senegal, and then started in the, the tuna fishing derbies. And then he used the live bait technique that he learned from the Basque that nobody else had. And so he won the derbies year after year. He was also known for being the first mixed crews. He hired Africans. So, yeah, I mean, this guy was a true Viking, right? Like, he, <laughs> he went yeah, out there yeah. and... An entre entrepreneur, but in in his book, the Vikwakimaitik, he talks about because he talks about capitalism as being this driving force that's helped the economy, but it's also like wrecking the planet because we're just consuming all the resources, etc. But he and I now I don't know if this is true. I haven't actually looked it up, but I trust him because he's a very intelligent man, very learned, um, self-taught, and then he uh, does his research and he he mentions that the 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 genesis of capitalism as we understand it today started in Portugal with a single ship. And the idea was the these merchants came together and pooled their resources to fund an enterprise, is what they called it, the first enterprise. They they pooled their resources to build the ship to then go to the new world and explore and get get new wealth. And that was kind of the beginning of what we call 
call an enterprise and modern capitalism. But if you take that and you transpose it onto the Viking Age, and maybe this is appropriate, or maybe it's not, but we're I'm going to go with it. The the Vikings, if you think about how they rearranged their entire home economy to build these ships to go abroad, right? We've talked to Terry and I before about the resources, the vast resources needed just to build one ship. And now they're building 100, 200. So the entire local economy in Scandinavia had to change to accommodate this outward expansion. And so now we have a scenario where I imagine there are a lot of, of chieftains and, and uh, leaders of local communities pooling tremendous resources to the point where they have to completely redo how society works, right? Which I think gave an end to Christianity because then they, they realized that, hey, this like this hierarchical system of organizing society really works well for this. Uh, and then, so they have to redo it. But it's almost like, you know, that's kind of the, this is almost a, the beta version of what happened in Portugal then 500 years later, right? 600 years later. Um, yeah, really yeah. No, no, that, I mean, that's about yeah, what your, 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 your grandfather's point is. I mean, yeah, because I, I use Brodell through my my friends. It was University of Glasgow for my PhD and and, and masters. And you you know, because you were in a mixed department, so you were getting people that were looking at things from the Bronze Age and, and looking at things uh through into the early modern period. And and, and one of my um my friends put, put me on to Fernand Brodell and this idea of of you know sort of pre-industrial but different forms of capitalism uh, and especially in a maritime trade sort of uh world that can develop and again it just makes you think that humans will find a way like the vikings will find a way they'll they'll you know if you're successful i think as soren sinbeck also says you know documentary i was watching saying it's this becomes the only game in town if you're not doing what the next valley are doing they're going to take over your valley you know so you know it's going to be like mm -hmm. um you you it, once that ball starts rolling, it snowballs essentially, and you know there's, there's great work done on tar pits that they you know they find in in, in Scandinavia um, now as well. That because you've got to develop all that tar, you've got to waterproof everything. You've got it. There, there's so many elements that that have, and you just you have to have regularity. Going back to again what we're talking about, everything's got to be replicable after a while, or otherwise it just you get that one ship. That's all well and good, but again the next valley's got four ships. And then they're getting all the wealth, and everyone in your valley is going to that valley. To and so you've you've got to say, oh, what are they doing? Right, we'll replicate that as well. And then you can see how it, it spreads it spreads up and in, into the into Arctic Norway as well. You you get there's some great recent research, and I mean I'll forget everyone's references at the moment, but if anyone listening to this podcast just wants to ever message me and get get references, they don't have to buy the book, but they can they they can ask me because there's loads of great work. Um, people it might just be someone's masters or whatever and they have this great thought and they find this site and then it's just getting that knowledge and, and, and incorporating it in, into into the rest but essentially what we're finding again is wherever you go in Scandinavia you're tending to find these same patterns whether it's trading sites or how that they're they're creating these resource controls that they can they can create these ships that they get enough of the ships and it's not just that one ship that's that's I think the the, the interesting way that you know we we can look at how how the viking world develops and then yeah you're going to get these modern parallels with the this with the early modern uh um mediterranean and you can look at brodell and sort of see that ways that looking at tramping traders that are going up and down the coast and then you'll get the traders you know this certain sinbet school that are going sort of direct from these nodal points to nodal points um but yeah no 
anyway that works you've got to produce these ships and you've got to produce the, the the goods that go in them and you've got to have enough and they've got to be regular so they're just all these mini industries these cottage industries that are all strung together so it creates something bigger in the landscape that really is an industrial landscape but it's in this pre-industrial sort of world to to create this 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 these trade networks that we see the evidence of everywhere yeah, I remember when CJ, when we were talking with Ben about this and, and what it took to just get, you know, these ships together and everything. And he said he never thought he'd get so excited about woodland management. <laughs> <laughs> I know Ben well, and I can, I can see, I can excited about management, to be sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, the economic theory, though, I mean, we like, kind of keep beating that horse just a little bit. I mean, so what you're talking about, it sounds to me like, you know, if in the, we're going to talk about sort of pre-capitalism versus capitalism, you know, the mercantilism, right? So the Vikings are kind of operating on this idea when you're talking about, you know, we have one ship, they have four, okay, we got to hurry up and catch up, or we've got to get it before they do kind of thing, you know, sort of this idea of, you know, the resources in the world being this finite pie, you know, and by definition, if I have it, it means you don't get it, right? Uh, yeah. The zero-sum game, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So. You know, I think I think you'd uh, I think you'd enjoy my books. I I got a, a negative review recently, um, and I love getting negative reviews because they make me laugh most of the time. Because it's it's just fascinating me to see how different people will view my work. And and uh, actually, when I first started writing, I'd get really upset because I'd be like, oh, why? Oh, you know. And then now I just I actually see it as like a mark of like, well, first of all, if I'm getting bad reviews, it means people are reading it. So. It's not <laughs> <successful>. <laughs> And um, second of all, some of these reviews are just they're, they're just gold because they do point out some of the things in the book that then I, I think, ah, yeah, it is interesting that they would see it that way. And I had one gentleman, I think he was in England, actually. Um, uh, and uh, I think it was a two or three star review, which is generally considered to not be great. And he said, uh, it was about the second book in the series. So the first book in the series is a real coming of age kind of adventure. Da, da, da. The second one's when he's like, you know, the character is just a little bit more evolved and he's he's really trying and uh, he's really trying to make a name for himself but how he does it is he's trying to make money basically he's and he and his first thought isn't rating it's let's control this salt trade in western france and so the review the reviewer basically said you know well the the author spent most of the book you know with the character being an incompetent salt farmer is just boring and i was like yeah, yeah, I I this <laughs> and I, I thought about it and i was like yeah i guess that wouldn't be very exciting would it <laughs> but the but it's the the reality of what was happening at the time right like is or how i imagined it right um taking all these economic ideas on you know what did spur people to go it wasn't just they, they didn't go explicitly to kill as hollywood would have you believe right they're not just showing up and being like we're just here to kill you because we don't like you no they they had an economic aim they were there to make money and if they didn't have to kill i love the example of the um of the Rus who would go east and they would set up little markets by and all they would do is they take their ships and flip them upside down i've seen this on i i saw it referenced when i was in college we did an early russia class and he talked about this flipping the ships upside down using them as the roof of their little their little uh of their little market you know so it's like they're showing up and they're not they're not as violent as we you know i, I mean the, there's a lot of violence but what i mean to say is the the main goal was economic at its at its base and sometimes that doesn't make for great fiction right <laughs> no i mean this is a, the the site um i was digging a site in 2019 happier times in, in ukraine and you were getting you got dirhams there as well so again the trade but the, the the most amazing thing you would see was where you could see 
in the uh, stratigraphy down. So there was this kind of like headland um, and then there's the river kind of went around it and on one side you could see where the ships had been dragged in so you can sort you saw where the keel had been dragged through the 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 sand and and again that that was it it was kind of like where they were was based on trade and what they were doing was based on money that was coming from thousands of, of miles away and they were controlling this loop in the river and you're controlling that loop in the river because ships and trade are going are going are going past it, and there there's a sort of citadel on the top, and most of the sort of more sort of Scandinavian Rus sort of artifacts are in this little sort of citadel that they discovered. So, yeah, that's it. And I think you you talk about your writings as well, you know, this sort of mafia idea. But yeah, if they can sit there and take a cut and can control things, and they're not having to go out and risk getting killed, as happens, you see you see it ripped, and you see what happens when it goes wrong. You see the the famous burials that the chap that had his he got a spear that seems to have gone into his eye socket and his helmet and then risen up. And then somebody chopped off his his uh his private parts for want of a better word. He's the he's the guy with the, the boar's tusk that was replacing it as well. You see what happens when it goes wrong. And what they're and if you go to Repton, it's on this bluff uh overlooking uh the the Trent, the old Trent waters it is now, but the Trent, and again, they're going to the same places, but you see very much at Repton what happens when it goes wrong. And you've got the charnel house there with hundreds of bodies in it. So they knew that it was this very sort of fine line between ending up in a grave with a boar's tusk or being the king of being the king of Jorvik in, in, in Dublin. And you'd much rather be sitting there just taking your your five percent off everybody that comes in. And they'll have seen the Anglo-Saxon kings, they'll have seen the Frankish kings. You know, that's what they're doing. They're essentially changing the money so often and getting a cut off that. That's what you want to do. You want to, you just want to get just money. If it's lower rates and it's not shiny, but if you can guarantee bringing that money in, then you can make sure that your supporters and your your princelings, whatever, aren't going to revolt because you can pay them off constantly. So I think that's the safest way because otherwise it's highly contingent that you know you go raiding, you either get killed or you don't get enough stuff there. And then you have to go back at the end of that trade that, that raiding season, and then you can't pay all your retainers, and then they go off to the next valley. You know, it's it's it must have been stressful, but I think there were they would have known ways that would have potentially made it less stressful. And I think less stressful is is the trade end of the spectrum that raiding is on the other end of that spectrum. Are we going to have like the takeaway from this podcast? This is going to be the title: The Vikings were lazy. <laughs> <laughs> but don't use the word lazy. Don't use the word lazy. <laughs> so that'll be in parentheses. But don't use the word lazy. Yeah, right. Lassie fair. The Vikings were lassie fair. Yeah, there you go. Uh, no, yeah. Well, there you go. I guess we could do that in, in a nod to CJ because he's Breton. We'll use a French phrase for our yeah, 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 I like it. Lassie yeah. fair. Okay. Well, yeah, so okay, so I want to I want to ask you like just I guess quickly here. I mean, we're kind of um, hopefully we're not going to long for you because we could go on forever but like all right the viking world like them you know east west north south i mean this is a a large area and it's you know just like today all kinds of goods and products and services that are traded all the time and so you know like you mentioned so there's the silver that's important um you know the salt the the homespun the the walrus ivory this the furs whatever like all of this stuff right but I mean, if you kind of had to, which is kind of a stupid question, I suppose, but I mean, if you had to say like, all right, if they were going to be like all chips are in and we could only trade this one thing because it's the most lucrative thing, what do you think that would be for them? Slaves. Yeah, I agree. 
it's nothing. Right. I, think I called it. Yeah, that's it. Done. We're finished. No, I mean, I think I called it the without too much of a pun. The, the sort of dark, the, the sort of the dark matter is that thing that we don't see, but connects everything together and it kind of makes sense of everything. So I think the the physics equivalent of the dark matter is 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 the 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 trade in slaves, and I think that's that's the sine qua non. I think if you don't have that, you you kind of don't have a a kingdom. You don't have a, a trading empire. You don't have a trading city if if you don't have the slaves really um and I, I you can look beyond that you know and say all these you know silks or as you say you know various forms of cloth whatever and that there's going to be pelts there's gonna be lots of things that are there in in bulk um again sir and Sinbet, you're talking about the importance of things that you're trading in bulk but i i i just can't see the logic behind that world and the success of it unless it is not based on slavery and of course the big issue with that is talking about being dark martyr we can't really see it really most of the time you're yeah yeah i mean and talking about the inputs and outputs right i mean it's like you have to have um you know the community that supports this kind of activity and the way you have that is you've got the you know i mean who's building the boats who's who's weaving the sails you know we can say it's women weaving the sails how many of those women are free versus how many of them are unfree you know and that i mean you you need those bodies as the human resource input to even make this enterprise not only happen but grow if that's your intention right so they're they're part of they're they're the currency and they're the mechanism by which it happens i mean just like slavery in all time right at that level yeah and i, I you know it's 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 frustrating that it's not something that you can archaeologically find uh very very easily of course with the developments with the factors you know with with, with isotopic analysis of, of, of tooth enamel and as well as adna or in, ancient dna in future with bigger data sets we're talking about 100 200 years from now when they've got this vast data sets that we can only dream of now they might be able to have a better idea this person grew up in ireland and oh they've ended up in sweden and that happened and then we're getting lots of that happening you're going oh okay then we can see that is very much you know, uh, internecine sort of uh, Irish warfare leading to somebody spending the rest of their life in a farm uh, outside of uh, near Birka. And, you know, maybe that'll happen, maybe maybe it won't happen. But um, I just think, yeah, you know, the historical evidence is that when they go somewhere like the, I mean, I you, you talked to a little bit about me, uh, my volunteering at the, the Govan Stones, which is a kingdom Strathclyde, so a northern Britonic, old Welsh-speaking kingdom based around the Clyde, the Clyde Valley, and they have this um, citadel that's basically a sort of uh, a, an extinct volcano. So two of these massive plugs, it looks like something of Lord of the Rings. You can imagine two sort of citadels on the top of this, and it sits over the mighty sort of Clyde River and the River Leven that leads up to the famous Loch Lomond. So it controls this sort of confluence of, of, of rivers. And what we know from the history is that the Vikings in 870 come up from Dublin. I think there seem to be coming, Tim Clarkson suggests that they're also coming up from the Great Army in England as well at that time. And they besieged Dumbarton Rock, which means Rock of Fortress of the Britons. They were called Altclut, which means Rock of the Clyde or whatever in the, in the local Welsh Britonic language. But they besieged that for four months. Now, that's a huge investment. People just don't besiege things in the early medieval period. It's really, really difficult. 
but they you know they, they they put a lot of resource into this it's obviously very important and as it turns out for the next decade they spend a lot of their summers raiding and against the picts in, in central scotland and they're in some sort of alliance or at least a takeover at least for a time this kingdom of strathclyde that then moves to sort of govern and partake in, in what is now glasgow but what we get from the annals of ulster is after they take this dumbarton rock outclut and they spend that summer raiding then they go back to Ireland with 200 ships full of slaves. And, you know, they, 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 the slaves are from all over. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're Anglo-Saxons, they're, they're Britons, wherever, they're, they're picks. And I think that, that's key. They're putting this massive, I mean, if we take it at face value, they're putting this massive resource into taking the site that then allows them to secure their rear and then slave raid, essentially, for an entire summer. And then these 200 ships are going back to Dublin. Why do you have Dublin? Because it's a really good place to trade with uh, Western England, it's a really good place to trade up to Iceland, it's a really good place to trade up to, into, down into the, the Mediterranean as well. So the historical evidence all seems to point towards it. The archaeological evidence, obviously, just by its very nature, is very difficult. But I think when you do see it, they're fighting, they're taking slaves. When you've got that treaty between Alfred and Guthrum, we're talking about slaves as well. Just It just seems to be unlikely that, that, there's, that this is not happening without it being a huge part of the world that they live in. I think so. The second edition of your book, A Viking Market Kingdom in Ireland and Britain, colon, trade networks and the importation of a southern slave economy. That's, that, that's, oh, yeah, I, I think there that's it. it. I think I possibly would have if the evidence had been there. But then if you start doing that, then you're just the hostage to the fortune of the, the no evidence. But why is the silver? The silver's moving about again, but you know, probably because of the, the, the slavery. But what we find is the silver and it's, and it's there and I can study it and look at it and, you know, Hold it's, in your hand. yeah. Well, we, we had a conversation with Dr. Matthew Panessi about monastic loot. And I, I don't think we nat naturally gravitated towards slaves as one of the, I mean, I think we talked about it, but it wasn't like our top thing, but if you it, just looking into it, you know, at a cursory glance, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, you uh, you mentioned you you lean into Soren Sindebeck's research a lot, and he talks about the kind of that offsetting of the silver standard because of the influx of, of of Islamic silver from the east. So now you've got your kingdoms and or uh, chiefdoms in the in Norway and Denmark who are trying to compete with this inflated silver price. So then they start expanding, and and if you think of like what would what would the Swedes have been interested in trading, you know, all that silver for? And slaves is the number one thing probably. Uh, and, uh, and if you think about hitting monasteries first, uh, and what do you have in a monastery? You have a bunch of, of, uh, men who are physically capable of doing manual labor and who are not armed. And so you can just kind of waltz in there and pick up a lot of slaves really quickly, really easily. And it doesn't matter what else is there, right? I mean, whatever else is there that they can take portable, good, you know, portable wealth. Sure. Uh, but the main aim uh, could very, very likely, and I, I, uh, I have not read your book. I'm sorry, it, it was a little too expensive on Amazon over here in the U.S. But <laughs> it's, it's, now, it's now in paperback. It's now in paperback. It's uh... okay. Okay, I'll check it out then. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, uh, but given given the title that Terry has referenced multiple times, I, I presume that that would be your go-to. Is yes, they were there for the slaves. And to expand on that, when they went to Linda's farm, makes sense. And then they go over to Iona a, a couple of, of years later. That also makes sense. And then, like, real quick, they go to Domoutier off the coast of France, which is Saint-Philbert. And these are all remote monasteries that have these young, you know, uh, uh, work-capable, you know, good slave material, right? Well, well fed, well fed. Yeah, you know, well fed, exactly. Yeah. Again, you can trade yeah. on the literate. You can sell this slave can read and write. And, you know that that's a premium as well. So yeah. It's... Well, they, and then in France they went back 
pretty much every year starting kind of in the eight tens, right? Like there's, we have this, this, uh, we have the chronicles from, from uh, Saint-Philbert, uh, Hermontaire is the guy, Hermontaire he, it talks about these frequent and persistent raids that keep coming back, keep coming back. And then if you think about it, it took a long time for anybody to go back to Lindisfarne after that raid, right? So, so they didn't hit it again. Makes sense. And then same thing in Iona. They hit it again later, but like it was, it took a long time for them to repopulate that monastery. Saint-Philbert repopulated the next year. And so, of course, yeah, so, so it could just be that these frequent persistent raids were precisely because the monks couldn't figure out, they're like, why do they keep coming back here? Well, it's because you keep sending young, able men <laughs> into the monastery to be right for the taking. And replenishing <laughs> and, the precious metal stuff, right? That is Right, everything, fast. right? They're just like, oh, let's come back and put everybody back in here. And so the Vikings are like, you know, they're just making this really easy for us. Like, they, they just don't get it. <laughs> Well, in my super sophisticated academic way, I just called the the monastic uh, sites, you know, the ATM machines of the Viking world. Yeah. It's like you want a quick infusion, that's where you go. Get your get your cash, whether whether it's in you know portable wealth that's precious metal or portable wealth that's a human being. It's kind of a no brainer, you know. Not to sound sort of sort of callous and flippant about it, but mm. it, from from their standpoint, I can imagine. If we're going to be talking about Vikings in terms of path of least resistance all the time, which is smart. That, that kind of sounds like it to me. Yeah, I mean, and, I, and again, we, we've all done the same thing. We all, if something works, we tend to do it again until, you know, we get a bloody nose and then we'll do something slightly different, you know, and the Vikings would have just done it slightly further down the coast or in another jurisdiction, essentially, where they, they think they could get away with it. But, you know, fundamentally, we know the, the Viking ages that, you know, they kind of didn't change. Second Viking age, you're getting more kingdoms that are kind of doing it now. You get the sort of um, Fort Beard and Knuts of era of things when they're essentially kind of, they've got a kingdom or several, an empire behind them. And it, but even then it's like, if they can get off their boats and get the Danegeld or whatever becomes known as the Danegeld, they will they will happily leave you alone after that. It's They've got what, got what they wanted, essentially. Um, so it, it does it does change. But even then, I was reading a bit more about the Second Viking as well, and they're they're still going in and raiding and, and and fighting if if they if they want. But in the main, it's essentially they're they're wanting to get all this amazing English silver coin, and there's lots of it, and people will happily give it to them. It's become a strategy, and so yeah, I think yeah, the, the, yeah, this path of least resistance that yeah, if they, if if you know, but eventually it becomes so easy, and they realize how weak the sort of late Anglo-Saxon kingdom is in terms of its political. Political control is the wrong word, but in terms of, you know, it's beautifully structured against why the Normans want it afterwards as well. But the fact is that it's a bit like, you know, going back to Al-Andalus with the uh, with with the um, invasions from 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 North Africa, you kill one Visigothic king and then suddenly, hey, presto, you've got this kingdom. So, again, the path of least resistance is you get rid of the king, you get a kingdom. So the Vikings, the Scandinavians are at that time are just going to do that. They're not going to fritter around the edges. They're going to say, oh, we can take the kingdom now in one go. Yeah, why not? It's science. It's like, you know, it took until, what, the late 17th century for Newton to outline it for us. But the Vikings are basically operating under physics, the laws of physics. You keep doing <laughs> yeah, what you're yeah. doing until you meet resistance, right? And then yeah. <laughs> it governs and I think, I think, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that's it. I mean, and of course, it's, you know, um, it, you know we, as you were saying earlier, you don't want to be sort of, um, superficial about these things but it just I think sometimes it does really help just um, because we're meant to be science communicators here and this is what we're doing is like say people 
this is the easiest way to to understand it and it's helping us as well talking through podcasts like this help you kind of streamline your thinking and you can think of it in these more sort of superficial terms but superficial doesn't mean it's wrong it could just mean it's an easier way of <laughs> of saying the kind of the key point to make is is that yeah they 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 go where they think they're going to get the most return uh with the least uh risk so yeah well, I think so. I mean, kind of to wrap it up, then maybe what are we on here about a little hour and 20 or so um, to do like just maybe finish with a little bit of a, a statement about what you just kind of started or alluded to there, which is what we're all doing here. Um, you know, me through, you know, teaching at college, university, CJ through writing his historical fiction set in the Viking age, you doing, you know, archaeology and your museum work and everything. I mean, it's always like knowledge creation, but what do we have if we don't like get it out there? You know, can you speak to like how, your thoughts on, you know, it can, and because you're involved in media outreach and everything as well. So, I mean, I, I imagine that this is important to you. Yeah, I think it all goes back to probably the easiest way of saying it is, you know, if you think about archaeology, which is, you know, I still, I still dig on, 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 on Viking Age sites, also do Second World War sites, I'll do whatever. I mean, the, the, the fundamental thing is archaeology is destructive. So if we go to a site and we dig a trench, we're destroying that for anyone else to see. And if we don't report it properly, and if we don't subsequently get it out to the public, we are no better than anyone else that just deliberately goes and destroys some archaeology. We're on a podcast uh, the other week with 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 my company and they're talking about you know Irish prehistoric North Atlantic uh, rock art and in the past if people saw something they thought this is going to be a problem for my development they might just dynamite an entire panel of sort of uh, late Neolithic uh, uh, rock art the cup and ring marks that we all know so well so we're no better than that if 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 we don't uh, record it and I think that's just not enough nowadays as well because. I, you know, the, the the it's in an ivory tower. A lot of this stuff, the access, you know, is 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 within a library or within a sort of online library system. So I think even if we've got report, we were kind of duty bound, morally at very least, to get that information out there. Otherwise, we'd kind of just destroy the site and know that it's just a few of us and our peers that will ever get to see it, and then we just kind of keep this all this lovely information to ourselves, and then you know. You know, some something goes horribly wrong at, at a Viking Congress, and we're we're all we're all dead, and then suddenly you're lost all this knowledge. But if you can get it out in a podcast, you can get it out in a popular article in a newspaper. Then suddenly millions of people can 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 see it, and I think that's fun to do. It's fun to try and think of it, and it helps us think about things on every possible level as well in terms of you know because it's that classic thing. If you can explain something, you understand it, and I think if you can't explain it and to the general public to your friends then you don't really actually understand what, what you're talking about. So I think it's important for us uh, as academics and writers and authors, as much as it is just for, for, for anybody, we've, we've got to share the knowledge and help us understand it and help, you know, help the world of understand all the stuff that we know is, is so fascinating. And yeah, it, it would be a shame for us just to keep it to ourselves. Yeah. Amen to that. That's awesome. hundred percent agree. Right. CJ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. Amen. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, thank you so much again for sharing your thoughts and your time with us. Really, really interesting. We could go on forever, but alas, we, we should probably stop <laughs> so you can get on with your evening and we can get on with our day. You know, well, it's been an absolute pleasure. And as I say, it's not just lip service. I do really appreciate the, the chance because I've, I've you know had a lot of time research that lots of other people have paid for, including very much my parents. 
Um, so the fact is I can sort of, you know, g- give it back a bit as well. And uh, my mum will certainly be listening to this. So hi, mum. <laughs> You've made them proud. Hi, Tom's mum. <laughs> hi, Marjorie. How are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's very nice to meet you. Really appreciate the conversation. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, this was this was a great one. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And uh, oh, yeah. And the baby's still asleep. Yay. We made it. it.